and welcome to the TriDoc Podcast. My name is Jeff Sankoff, an emergency physician, multiple Ironman finisher, and your host, the TriDoc, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I know that I probably sound like a broken record each episode, imploring you to leave a rating and a review wherever you download this podcast, but the reason for that is that those ratings and reviews are really one of the only ways that I have to get this podcast in front of more people and give them the chance to hear this show. So thanks to those of you who've already done, and if you haven't, please do consider it. On the show today, I'm joined by paratriathlete and Paralympian Liz McTurnan from Great Britain. Liz holds the record for the fastest Ironman as a hand cyclist and wheelchair athlete and is also the reigning world champion for the Ironman in that division. Today, she joins me to talk about her career and some of the challenges that she faces in training and racing within the challenged athlete division. The triathlete retired returns with my first guide to a race outside of the United States. Today, my guest and I will discuss the 70.3 race in Monterey, Mexico. But before all that, I have another really interesting listener question to answer. As triathletes, or whatever kind of endurance sport enthusiast you may be listening to this, you may have likely heard of the dangers of developing exercise-induced hyponatremia, or low serum concentration of sodium, when participating in long-distance events, especially in warmer environments. Today's question pertains to this problem, how it comes about, and what could be done to prevent it. The answers, I'm guessing, will be very likely to surprise you. Back in episode three, I had a guest on the show to discuss sweat testing and salt replacement. That was a really interesting conversation, but as you are about to learn, it was far from the whole story. A listener recently wrote to ask me about hyponatremia among triathletes. She wanted to know what it is, how big a problem it can be, and what could be done to prevent it through proper hydration and salt supplementation. Hyponatremia is the name for low sodium concentration in the blood. Sodium is one of the most important extracellular ions, and its concentration is tightly controlled by the kidneys. While the kidneys do handle sodium itself to a small degree, the really important manner by which sodium concentration is controlled is by virtue of holding on to or excreting water. Exercise-associated hyponatremia, or EAH, has long been recognized as a potentially serious and even lethal complication in athletes competing in long-duration sporting activities, especially those in warmer environments. When it was first identified in the 1980s, EAH was seen as a problem for ultra runners and Ironman triathletes. However, over time, it has come to be seen in all manner of sports, including much shorter duration and lower exertion activities as well. Some 40 years after its initial description, and despite its widespread recognition, EAH remains a significant problem and many athletes die from it every year. A lot of research has been done on EAH, and our understanding of why it occurs and how it develops is much better today than it was even 10 or 15 years ago. Unfortunately, though, the lessons learned have not been taken up at all within the community of athletes, coaches, or even race directors who all need to understand this the most in order to have an impact on reducing how often EAH is seen. So let's consider this in discrete topics in order to get the best possible understanding of EAH and how you can reduce the likelihood that you or someone you know will ever be affected. I'll begin with a description of how much of a problem this really is, how many people are affected, and in what kinds of circumstances. I'll then talk about EAH and how it develops, and finally, what can be done to prevent it, including what strategies are not helpful. 
Now, much of what I'm going to talk about today comes from a review article published in 2017 entitled Exercise-Associated Hyponatremia, 2017 Update. But I pulled from a couple of other resources as well, and I'll have links to all of them in the show notes. To start, let's consider just how prevalent EAH really is. Over the past decade, Deaths from EAH have been confirmed in the lay press in high school football players following practice, a soldier on the first day of ranger training, a policeman participating in a 19-kilometer bike ride, a college student performing calisthenics for a fraternity, a bushwalker, an Ironman triathlete, and a canoeist during an ultra-distance race. Additionally, a highly fit soldier died during a 50-kilometer training march. The literature also reports symptomatic cases of EAH after long-distance swimming, mountain biking, yoga, two hours of weightlifting plus tennis, and in an individual with cystic fibrosis in whom the disease causes exacerbated losses of sodium after low-intensity lawn bowling. Potentially more interesting, cases of asymptomatic EAH, that is, EAH that doesn't cause any symptoms in the participants, but is found because it's diagnosed through routine screenings that are being done for research purposes, have recently been documented in a third of rugby players following a match, two-thirds of elite junior rowers during an extended training period, 11% of Ironman triathletes tested post-race, 6% of endurance cyclists tested post-race, two-thirds of ultra-marathon runners tested during a race, 5% of marathon and half-marathon runners tested before a race, and then 8% of marathon and half-marathon runners tested after a race. Suffice it to say, EAH is a pretty big deal, affecting many athletes in many different sports, although fortunately only causing symptoms in a small number and deaths in an even smaller number. So why is this happening as much as it is? For many years, dehydration was felt to be a significant risk to athletes performing in endurance events, and consequently, athletes have been conditioned over time to take in fairly large quantities of liquids during their races. There is no question that dehydration can affect performance. Losing 1-2% to of your intravascular blood volume just from water loss negatively affects the performance of the heart and can decrease sweat rate, leading to a loss of effective evaporative cooling. However, for reasons that I'll discuss later, you have to lose a lot more than 1-2% to of your body weight before you actually lose 1-2% to of your intravascular water. And it is well understood that heat illnesses can develop in people who are not dehydrated. And it has never been shown that the risk of heat illness decreases with increased fluid intake. Nonetheless, because of the early experiences with athletes who did not hydrate properly, if at all, the fear of dehydration motivated coaches and athletes to push the notion that staying ahead of the game and hydrating early and often was the key to success in long-duration events. This notion was fueled by an entire industry of manufacturers of sport drinks, who continue to this day to advocate for the idea that athletes should drink as much as possible and provide ample opportunities to do so by acquiring their products along the course. Unfortunately, in the rush to manage the scourge of dehydration, EAH was born. You see, as I mentioned earlier, our kidneys tightly control sodium concentrations in the blood primarily through the amount of water they retain or excrete. When athletes take in large quantities of fluids, fluids that are very much hypotonic, that is to say containing little or no salt, they overwhelm the ability of the kidneys to regulate sodium concentration, and the athlete effectively drowns themselves in water. It turns out that overhydration is the cause of EAH, and it is something that we are entirely in control of and have had pushed on us for years and years. I know what you're thinking. Many of you have been told that it is critical to balance water losses when racing. 
Many of you have performed tests where you determine your actual sweat rates in order to better be able to determine exactly how much water you are losing every hour so that you can replace it right down to the milliliter. Well, if you'll keep an open mind for a few minutes, prepare for it to be blown. First, let's consider the merits of sweat rate testing. The rationale behind sweat testing is that if you know how much you are sweating, then you can replace that fluid exactly during a race. However, the rate at which a person sweats varies a lot depending on environmental conditions. Let's say, for example, that you do the test in a moderately humid environment at a warm temperature and lose 1,000 mils per hour, or 1,000 cc's. Then, you go to a race in a dry climate at a cooler temperature, and your actual sweat loss is only 750 cc's per hour. If you were to drink that 1,000 cc's per hour that you had calculated based on your sweat test, after four hours, you would be a full 1,000 cc's over and above what you had actually lost. And given that the liquid being ingested would be hypotonic, the risk of developing EAH would be very real. Second, let's look at why it is that you don't actually need to replace all of the fluid that you lose. When we metabolize fuels during a race, we produce carbon dioxide and water. This water is dumped into our cells and eventually into our blood. So as much as we are losing water through sweat and even through respiration, we are replenishing some of it through normal cellular metabolic processes. Furthermore, when glycogen is mobilized, large quantities of water are liberated. For every kilogram of glycogen that your body breaks down and liberates into glucose, three kilograms of water are released into your blood volume. Okay, so if we need to be careful about overhydrating, then how do we ensure that we drink enough without drinking too much? Well, in the words of the authors of one of the papers that I read, quote, it need not be complicated, end quote. But it's going to be something that I imagine most of you are going to actively resist as a strategy because it is exactly the opposite of what you have been told for quite some time. Basically, it all boils down to simply drinking when you are thirsty. That is because there is now ample evidence that drinking to thirst, even during prolonged exercise under hot ambient conditions, will allow maintenance of proper hydration, will attenuate thermal and circulatory strain, and will not impair performance compared with a higher volume of fluid intake. Lastly, let's consider yet another controversial subject, a discussion of an intervention that has no effect whatsoever on preventing the development of EAH and another revelation that I suspect will leave many shaking their heads in disbelief, and that is salt supplements. The amount of research that has been done on salt tablets of all kinds is really very impressive and I dare say very convincing. The weight of the evidence is really overwhelming just by virtue of the fact that all of the studies have concluded the exact same things. Number one, the use of salt supplements has no effect on the development of EAH. Number two, salt supplements have no effect on reducing muscle cramps in any way. And number three, salt supplements do not reduce fatigue nor improve performance in any measurable way. Again, there's a huge industry out there that would have you believe otherwise, but the scientific evidence is really clear on these matters. Salt is not the issue in EAH. Overhydration is. Salt is also not the issue with cramping, but I'm not going to belabor that point here as it's a subject for another podcast. Suffice it to say, if you are stricken with cramps, it will not be helped or prevented by salt supplements. The fact of the matter is, Whatever it is that you're eating during your race likely contains adequate salt to replenish your losses. Now, there's no evidence out there to suggest that salt supplementation is a bad thing, so I'm not necessarily saying that those of you who use some sort of electrolyte supplement should stop doing so. I'm only saying that you should not expect any beneficial effects. Nor should you expect that taking salt supplements is somehow protecting you from developing EAH. 
So what does one to do with all of this conflicting information? The science is very much in direct conflict with what athletes, coaches, and industry experts have said for years and continue to say anytime they're asked. I can only tell you what the science says and then leave it to you to decide how you will balance the competing arguments for yourself. Number one, EAH is a significant problem affecting more than 10% of Ironman athletes and contributing to the deaths of athletes in many types of sports of varying duration and intensity. Number two, EAH develops as a direct consequence of overhydration that is almost always due to programmed or scheduled drinking during an event. Number three, salt supplementation is unnecessary and does not prevent EAH, nor have any other beneficial effect. If your race day nutrition does not contain very much sodium, salt supplements may augment your intake, but there is no evidence that this will be of any benefit whatsoever. However, there is no evidence that will cause any harm. And lastly, the most important strategy to employ to prevent overhydration and the development of EAH is to drink in response to thirst and not for any other reason. The idea that waiting until you are thirsty means you have waited too long to start drinking is pretty much complete rubbish and may be dismissed out of hand. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the show? Email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. My guest for today's episode is a star in the paratriathlon world, and I'm very excited to have her on the podcast. Liz McTurnan started paratriathlon in 2011, aged 45, after a lifeguard suggested it because her swimming was good. She attended a talent identification day with British Triathlon and was chosen to be entered into the European and World Championships, where she won silver medals in both. In 2012, she won bronze at the World Championships in Auckland, and in 2013, she made her first attempt at a 70.3, but was pulled from the course at 75 kilometers on the bike. Her dream of completing an Ironman were put on the back burner at that point. Eventually, she would take on the Ironman at no less an auspicious race than that of Kailua Kona for her very first try, where again, things didn't go so well. But she persevered, and since that first DNF, she has added some incredible accomplishment to her list of Palmeiras, including 2018, she was the Ironman world champion in Kailua Kona, Hawaii, and she is the course record holder. She is the Iron tri- Ironman triathlete record holder for recumbent handbike for the fastest female wheelchair athlete. And she did that in Cozumel in 2017. She is ranked sixth in the world for two th- uh, in 2018 for hand cyclist in the WH4 category in UCI. In 2016, she was a double bronze medalist for the UCI World Cup in Bilbao. And in 2015, she became the Guinness World Record holder for the fastest arm-powered 200 meters by a hand cycle. Welcome to the podcast, Liz. That's quite a list of accomplishments. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, when when you read it back like that, I think, oh gosh, did I do all that? <laughs> because uh, at the moment, after doing my Ironman and trying to um, get into a, a slightly different aspect of the sport, uh, it doesn't seem quite possible that I did all that. But obviously, I did. So, Liz, tell us how you came to uh, be doing triathlon in the division that you are. Were you? Uh, were you, I, I hate to say disabled, I, what is the correct way of, uh, what's the correct terminology? <laughs> uh, a pa- well, uh, para-athlete. Para-athletes. So were you yes, always a para-athlete? 
Or para-triathlete, if you're going to do a disabled triathlon. Uh, no, not at all. No, I, I didn't become a competitive athlete whatsoever until I was 45. And before then, were you... Uh... Uh, did you have the function of your legs before then? Oh, uh, yes, I did. I had my accident in June on June the 19th, 2005, um, whilst I was scuba diving. So I, I didn't discover any sort of adaptive sports that I could do uh, until um, 2010 that I heard about triathlon, paratriathlon in particular, and then started it, started competing in 2011. So it took some time to find the sport because I live in a very rural place in um, the UK and there just aren't any facilities for anything, actually. Mm -hmm. Able-bodied or otherwise? Uh, some sports for able-bodied, hockey, football, that kind of thing. But um until recently, we didn't have a very good uh, swimming pool. We didn't have a leisure centre as such. Uh, there was, um, yeah, there's no track within 45 minutes of me. There's no 50-kilometre pool within hundreds of miles of me. And, um, yeah, there just, there's no velodrome, no cycling, a few cycling clubs, but very male-orientated. So never mind the confines of any hand cycle or wheelchair, you uh, have to deal with all those other obstacles in the first place. <laughs> and transport, because it's very difficult to get places where I am. It's, it's literally, there are no dual carriageways or motorways um, anywhere near where I live. So getting out of the county that I live in is very difficult. It's, it's quite cut off from the rest of the world, the rest of the UK. So how did you discover that you had this capability? Uh, I mean, most people, most people come from a lifetime of athleticism, and, and yet you almost seem to have just discovered this. It's really funny. I did do running when I was a child. Uh, I used to live in Canada, in Mississauga, and I used to run around the school field and ended a couple of um, local races for that, uh, 400 and 800, I think I used to do. But apart from that, apart from doing a bit of ice skating when I was a teenager, um, I didn't. I had a horse when I was in my 20s when I was working in London and I could actually afford to have one. I didn't learn to ride until I was past 25. Um, used to ski, snowboard, horse ride, scuba dive, that, that kind of thing, but nothing... Nothing, no team sport, no no competitive sport, nothing. I, I don't know. I don't know. I think because um, I started swimming and realized that I could actually do something that was outside of my wheelchair and do it quite well. And in the pool, nobody knew I was disabled, apart from the fact that I wouldn't kick with my legs. Um, I would have a pool boy strapped between my legs. So people just thought I was doing normal kind of training. Now, I'm fascinated about the swimming part of it. As somebody who came to swimming as an adult and had all kinds of trouble, uh, and I know this is something that frustrates a lot of people who come to triathlon, especially who had to learn to swim as an adult, figuring out the body position and learning how to get your legs elevated in the water is incredibly frustrating and takes a long time. As a, a, a para-triathlete, 
how do you manage the buoyancy of your legs when you aren't even able to have them kick? How do you keep them afloat? How do you how do you keep yourself <laughs> moving forward in the water without that drag? Well, it's it's very strange because I swam before my accident, but I taught myself to swim freestyle um, as an adult, and I used to do it as a recreational thing. Um, I used to teach, so I used to go to the pool at lunchtime um, just for some time out, basically. So I always loved the water with scuba diving. You had to learn to swim for that. So, But um, coming back to swimming as someone with a disability, with being a paraplegic, was completely different. And it, it did take a long time to learn that my head was the pivot that would make my legs go up. So if I was head down, my feet would come up. But I, I also have a lot of spasticity. So for me, it's actually good because I'm kind of stuck in anterior tilt. So my hips are tilted forward, which is actually almost kind of perfect for swimming. And I, because of my spasticity, my legs stay very rigid and they stay very straight. So in a way, I've got an advantage. It's a strange one. At times, I don't want them to be so spastic, but that's how it is. But we also have an advantage over able-bodied swimmers because we're allowed to wear wetsuit bottoms or a full wetsuit, whatever the water temperature. To just add a little bit more buoyancy. And just, yeah, yes. yeah, yes. And just for my listeners who may not understand what you're talking about, the, the anterior tilt of your hips uh, coupled with the spasticity of the legs actually helps Liz keep her legs a float behind her without her having to do anything. And she's not conscious of it, of course, because she has no sensation and is paralyzed and is not doing anything. It's just uh, a direct result of her paralysis that her legs actually tend to naturally stay afloat. And That's by, right. And by pivoting, by like you said, with pushing your head down in the water, it even, it makes that yeah. More. Yeah, that's right. And breathing out without having that that buoyancy stuck in your chest. But it did take me it did take me a long time to learn that. And uh, I could swim about one length, twenty five meters, uh, without being able to kick. But I used to do disability swimming competitions as well, and that definitely teaches you to swim well without your legs. But then. Freestyle is 80% arms and 20% legs, so you, you don't really need to kick um, for the swim. But it's about trusting your body's ability to float in the water um, and right. being comfortable in the water. I think that's what people who come to swimming later on in life and as triathletes, that's what they find the most difficult, being comfortable. But But if I go to a swimming competition where everyone is disabled – Everyone has some kind of impairment, whether it's amputation, paralysis, whatever it is, CP. And you watch people swim with massive amounts of impairment and you wonder, you think, how? How do people swim like that? But they've learned to use their body in the best way they can. So, And they're also very confident in the water. So it's confident, I think. Now, Coming out of the water and getting into the hand cycle, uh, that must be really challenging for most of us. We have the luxury of uh, knowing that once we get out of the water, we get to switch to use our legs for the next, you know, five, six hours. For you, it's arms all day long. 
uh, <laughs> a slightly different motion, I gather, but uh, the training for you must be very intense and, and very, I mean, it's always arm day for you. Uh, it is right? always arm day. I have to skip leg day every day. <laughs> it's funny, but it, but it is different because, uh, oh, yeah, it's different muscle groups, um, swimming, lats, shoulders, you jump into the the bike. It's um, biceps, triceps, or shoulders, pecs, and then you get into the race chair and you can't. Oh, it's just bliss until you've done about half an hour, and then it's really just not bliss. But uh, yeah, it's diff- it is always arms day. And, I, I will um, say that that's similar. I mean, that's similar for us, right? You get off the bike and you yeah. run, and it feels so good because you're using different muscles in your legs and your back and your hips. <laughs> And then after half an hour, it's about the same kind of feeling like, oh, my God, i got to do this for another uh, two and a half. <laughs> I mean, I do sympathize with able-bodied triathletes because they do actually use their legs for the vast proportion of the race. And, and lots of triathletes, able-bodied, will only swim with their arms in the, in the swim to save their legs. And it's also for running um, for us it, as a paratriathlete, it's not the same stress and strain on the on the joints as pounding the pavement. So in the racing chair, it is it is it's less strain. It's it's peculiar technique, and it can strain your shoulders and your wrists, but you don't get that constant pounding. What's uh, the as, hardest? Uh, what's the hardest discipline of the three? Oh, for me, it's definitely the racing wheelchair. It's the thing that I've done the least. The swimming is easy for me. I. I I hate to say that, but it's like a warm up for the bike. But the bike, I mean, the bike is a lot. It's a long way on a hand cycle, an Ironman. It's such a long way, and it's it's more psychological. Pedaling for over eight hours is is very difficult. Um, that's why it's so relieved to get onto the race chair. The race chair, I still I'm still working on my technique. I'm I've only got my second racing wheelchair in nine years. And I'm desperate to get um, a new one with a different position and a solid kneeling plate um, because I've I've outgrown, if you like, the other one. My technique's changed and I need, I need to change. The chair needs to change with me. So, so the bike time is eight hours for you? In Kona, it was eight hours and five minutes. And then the 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 run or the whatever the, wait, oh, the chair time? Man. The run was just awful. How long uh, was that time? Four hours and 41 minutes. Okay. So, so, so it's not <laughs> – mine wasn't it significantly better. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, it rained on the Queen K. It, it was just awful. I mean, for, for us, Polani is, is terrible because it's yeah. over 10%. And um, the race chair is set up so that it's very tippy. So the front wheel is very light. All the weight is in the back, um, and also you just you Does cannot it have grip. a brake so that it can't slip it, backwards. Uh, that's so funny. <laughs> a brake. Well, not a brake, but a, uh, like a flywheel of some type, so it can't roll backwards. Oh, I see. So no, not at all. Okay. No, it has one brake on the front wheel. Some you can put. One of the competitors did actually. He hadn't qualified for Kona. He was in the PC lottery as a hand cyclist. And he had anti-tips on the back of his race chair because he sits, he's not able to bend from the hip at the moment. He has a a health problem. And um, I noticed he had some anti-tips, which definitely help. 
um, because it's quite scary when the the chair goes up at 90 degrees and oh i I, i'm sure i i love that like i know i go into transition and i like you know ogle all of the you know fancy bikes (laughs) that everyone has and you go (laughs) into transition and you ogle the fancy chairs i think that's great no no i i ogle the fact there's a picture of me in cozumel and there's these pink wheels aero wheels and i'm like oh i want them (laughs) um yes because we're not able to get all the different wheels that able-bodied athletes are, all the components. So it's very, it's almost unfair because uh, we're, because I ride a bike with 20-inch rear wheels. There are only so many suppliers that provide the 20-inch wheels. And also on the hand cycle, it's a 650, not a 700. Ah, And that's standard. So there aren't as many options for tires and wheels. The race chair is 700s. But you have to have um, particular um, it's career. There are only so many discs that will will actually probably you probably could get the discs. But there are certain suppliers that, right. that supply discs with the right fitting for the um, for the race chair. Now, it's I know a- I, I know when you're racing, you're racing for yourself. Uh, are you aware of how inspirational you are to everyone around you. I mean, it's it's always an incredible oh. feeling for those of us to see you out there, you and your, you know, your colleagues or your your fellow para-athlete, para-triathletes out there. It's it's just a it's a wonderful feeling for those of us who are fortunate enough not to be in that position to see mm. you racing. And uh, I know we all feel like, wow, you guys are amazing and you've done like you're incredible. And I think all of us probably feel inside like, gosh, I, I hope that if I was faced with, you know, those kinds of circumstances that I would be that amazing. I think that's probably a lot of what we're all thinking. Um, that might be so, but you can't in a race. Um, it's great when people come past you and give you a shaka or they say, good job, man. Or they usually mistake me for a man first off. Because you're going so fast. Obviously. (laughs) And then when I say something, they go, Oh, sorry. Sorry. (laughs) And uh, I find that quite amusing because they're assuming I'm a man. Uh, but I did make a big mistake in Kona the first time in 2017. I got so wrapped up in the people um, giving me shakas and I would give them back and I would thumbs up and I would, you know, wave to people. I was enjoying it far too much. Um, I was definitely not in the moment. And that's probably why I rolled into T2 1 minute 51 seconds past the cutoff. Uh, lesson learned <laughs> oh big time so unfortunately for all the people that said hello to me i would mm, i wouldn't I, I decided at kona the second time that i would just not wave i would not do with shaka i would say thanks to people that passed me but there's quite a lot of energy that you have to expend in a race when people are trying to i know i know that they feel that way, that, that, you know, they find, we don't like the I word, I'm afraid. Oh, really? It's it's almost, You see, see, this is why I, this is why I love having you here because 
it's like not knowing if, uh, <laughs> if disabled is the right term, you know, it's like, I, I feel like there's all of these, these things that we, we say that we don't mean, uh, at all in any negative connotation. And, and of course, because I don't know anyone in that, that, that realm, I sure. don't know that they have a negative connotation. So you're enlightening sure. me and I appreciate that. Sure. The, the I word in a race, that's okay to be called inspirational because you are doing an Ironman with only your arms on a hand cycle and a racing chair but um, if someone was called inspirational just for getting out the door or driving a car or going shopping or whatever whatever simple task day-to-day task that anybody else does um, then that can be quite frustrating I could see um, that yeah, I could see that. I think that's not really where I'm coming from. I think where I'm coming from is more the thought that here I am doing, knowing how hard I've worked to get where I am. Mm-hmm. And if that were to suddenly change tomorrow, uh, because of, so, you know, if I were to get hit by a car while riding my bike and suddenly didn't have the, the, the use of my legs anymore, um, mm-hmm. I would hope that I would be mm-hmm. able to, to, to still be able to do what yeah, you but, and but, your fellow athletes but, do. But for some people, you see, I'm not sure. I have scuba dived again since I had my scuba diving accident, which some people find quite strange. I have got friends who have been knocked off bikes and paralyzed and go into triathlon, into paratriathlon. I have got friends who've been triathletes beforehand, been training for different events, been knocked off their bikes and become paralyzed. And they've become para triathletes so i guess it's not it's not for i don't know it's not for everyone i don't think it's uh, for me if i'd done triathlon able-bodied i'm not quite sure that i would get it enough to be able to become a para triathlete because it is so incredibly different right Um, i don't think people realize that using your arms and shoulders for everything is going to take a lot of years you you can't just jump straight onto the bike the hand cycle and right. expect to be good and it also we're not unless you're called Yetzer Platz who's just um set a hand cycle world record in the velodrome of 44.7 kilometers an hour I believe seven eight kilometers wow. an hour oh yeah wow I mean um he did Kona in 2017 and beat most of the pro men field. Wow. Yes. Um, so that's somebody who's really setting the standard very, very high. Um, so for, for somebody who's newly injured to come in and think, I wish I could do that. It, it's not something that you can do in one year, two years, five years, possibly 10. Do you know what I mean? It's Yeah. It's not going to be as easy because we don't also we also we don't have age groups. So only able-bodied triathletes have age groups. Para triathletes have one division which is physically challenged, the PC division, but within that division are the hand cyclists who compete in their own um, category, but as part of the PC. But for PC athletes to get to Kona, they they only go into a lottery. They don't have to qualify. which isn't fair because there are an awful lot of PC athletes who are good enough to go to Kona, uh, whether they're visually impaired, amputees, um, CP, can ride a trike, whatever it is, um, they don't get the opportunity to qualify for Kona. 
So it's it's completely different to being an able-bodied triathlete. Well, then I'm going to go back and say that it is inspirational. Because if it takes 10 years to to really, you know, that that's that's not doing something that an able-bodied person does every day. That that's putting in extra effort and that's really putting and on top of that you don't get to qualify like I mean never mind the unfairness of not being able to qualify like everybody else but uh you know to then to then be able to get there and 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 it, it is it's it's quite uh it's quite amazing. It's it's an amazing uh it's amazing what you're able to do. I'm I I am personally inspired. <laughs> and I, I appreciate what you say about that not being something you like to hear. So I, I, mm-hmm. I I'm saying that more I'm saying that more tongue in cheek. Uh but, in the in the uh, context of triathlon, I'll, I'll take that one. Yes, that's really what I mean. In the context of triathlon. And and uh maybe with the Guinness World Record too. That's also uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been broken. Yeah. It's been, I still have the Guinness World Record, the actual land speed record's been broken. Uh, just last year so that's that's fine by me and I'm I'm really hoping that somebody comes along and beats the Kona course record because I'm sure there are women out in fact I know two that are aiming for 2021 so um oh yeah that's gonna go down that time definitely now I'm fascinated. Uh, you know, 2017, you had your DNF at Kona because of the missing the cutoff, and you just turned around and showed up in Cozumel and shattered <laughs> shattered the world record. Uh, so, uh, how did you how did you do that psychologically and physically? <laughs> I was just so peeved off. Um, I couldn't believe that I trained for an entire year. And Ironman training is so grueling. So, so I looked through some of my training the other day and it's like six and a half hours a day and it just goes on and on and on. So to be, to be fit enough to do an Ironman, but then think I've got to wait another, I've got to qualify again for Kona and wait another year. I just, and all the mistakes that I made, the small mistakes, too fast in the swim, according to my coach, you know, he did too much, too too fast, too much lactate because he took my blood in transition, too much time putting on um, compression socks, too much time doing the shaka and the thumbs up and anyway, um, not enough strength and strength and conditioning training, all those kind of things. But um yeah, it only took me a week, literally, to come back from Kona. So disappointed because everyone saw me in Kona and they were going, oh, congrats. I'm like, yeah, I didn't finish. Oh, 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 OK. <laughs> because I was the only woman there um, competing as a hand cyclist. But uh, I looked around and thought, which which end of season race could I do? And there were, I think there were two left after Kona because there aren't very many, are there? No. So, yeah. Yeah, Cozumel it was. <laughs> and it's also a flat course. So unlike Kona, which is extremely hilly, as you know. Yeah. <clears throat> but um, flat has its own problems as well for a hand cyclist because it means constantly pacing yourself yeah. and also dealing with a lot of wind. And because because of the course in Cozumel, you do three loops of the same course. So you face the wind Whichever way you go, you're going to get wind one side or not the other side. So it's um, 
Yeah, it's still quite a challenge. Great swim, though. Uh, I did under an hour. <laughs> nice, fast, nice, fast with the current, right? Yeah. Oh, it's ace. It's yeah. The best swim ever. Save lots of energy for the bike. And the run is um, pretty flat as well. But I did get a puncture with five kilometers to go at the end of an Ironman, which is pretty hard. Uh, yes, so did one of my friends, and that puncture cost her her slot to Kona. <gasps> yeah, no. well, it's okay. She got her slot at a different race, so it was all good. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, we don't have option again either, do we? Because there's only three races in the world that a hand cyclist can qualify at. Oh, wow. Mm. Well, fortunately for you, it worked out that time. It did. It did. Excellent. Uh, Liz McTurnan is a paratriathlete since 2011. She is currently the Ironman world champion as a hand cyclist and holds the world record that she set in Cosmo in 2017. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been great fun. After concluding my interview with Liz, I found out a couple of things about her circumstances that she had not shared with me when we spoke. It's a testament to her humility and character that she did not tell me these things, but I want to share them with you on her behalf in the hopes that some of you might decide to give her a hand. First of all, you heard Liz refer to how difficult it is for her to get around in the rural village that she lives in. What she didn't say is that the main reason for her difficulties is because in November last year, one of her main sponsors who had provided her with a specially outfitted van adapted for her to drive and for her to be able to transport all of her adaptive equipment for racing went bankrupt and her van was repossessed to be auctioned off by creditors. These vans are prohibitively expensive, and it was because of her generous sponsor that she had been able to not only get around for her training, but also travel extensively in the UK and Europe to race. This year, without transportation, she has already had to skip at least one race that she had hoped to do, and it's uncertain if she will need to skip more. Liz tells me that she thinks she has a solution to this problem forthcoming, and she promised to share any developments with me, and I will pass them along as well. Another thing that I learned about Liz after we spoke is that her racing wheelchair is very much in need of replacement. These two are prohibitively expensive, and so she is trying to raise funds through a crowdfunding website. I would ask you all to please consider passing this site along in your own social media feeds, and I hope you might consider helping Liz in any small way that you might be able. I'll post a link to her site in the show notes and my Instagram feed, which is at tridoccoaching. Thanks very much. I'm very excited about this episode of the Triathlete Routard, both because it is the first time that we will be discussing a race that takes place outside of the United States, but also because it gives me an opportunity to welcome back my very first guest from the very first episode of the podcast. As a reminder, the Triathlete Routard is your audio guide to some of the destination races on the Ironman and Ironman 70.3 calendar, where we aim to give you some tips and tricks about the location, the course, and things to see and do if you decide to go. Today, we'll be discussing the 70.3 race in Monterey, Mexico, and joining me for the discussion is my dear friend and frequent travel companion for races, Kelly Poix. Kelly is an absolute star in the sport of triathlon, winning her age group in almost every race that she enters, and finishing on the podium when she somehow is not on the stop step. In the past two years, she was third at both the 70.3 Worlds and the Ironman World Championships in Kailua, Kona. 
Kelly now shares her experience and expertise as a coach filling the position of lead coach for the base performance team. And she joins me now to discuss Ironman Monterey 70.3. Welcome back to the podcast, Kelly. Thank you for having me back, Jeff. So let's talk about this race. You and I did it back in 2015 when it was held in March. It's now held in May, so there will be some differences that we'll get into in a little bit. But uh, as far as the race goes, um, I can tell you that it does not sign up quickly. (laughs) Um, We are recording this in late March. The race is scheduled for uh, mid-May, and it is still open. There are five tiers of... um, uh, price and uh, in this race uh, the price goes up by date as opposed to uh, the numbers and uh, they're on tier three and it's still open so a race that you can decide to sign up uh, for um, closer to the date all right let's talk about travel uh, travel and gear transport mm-hmm. I uh, I was living in Chicago at the time and uh, it was I liked the idea of doing Monterey because it was in the same time zone um, so that was that was a bonus. Uh, I travelled with my bike in my Evoke bike bag. Um, I think that was the second or third time that I'd ever travelled with my bike in that manner. And uh, so, you know, always a little bit nervous and, you know, take my time pulling it apart and putting it back together again. But uh, I think I flew United. Uh, actually, I don't recall. But, uh, yeah, I, I remember actually seeing them load my plane, my, my bike onto the plane. So I did have a good feeling. I knew it was going to arrive. <laughs> <laughs> it's never a good thing when you look out the window and you see them flinging the blue bike bag on. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Be careful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I flew from Denver and it was a quick flight. Uh, connected. I, I met you on yeah, the connection. Yeah, yeah. H- uh, Dallas, I believe, yeah, we yeah. connected. And... Uh, it was an easy flight. I mean, it was a short flight from Dallas uh, mm. down to Monterey. And once you got to Monterey, it was really easy to navigate to the hotel. And we stayed in the hotel that was affiliated with the race. Yeah. yeah. Is that it? Yeah. And there were two or three hotels that were affiliated with the race that were all close, all very close together and very easy. And mm-hmm. uh, I would recommend anybody going there would do that. There's no reason not to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also took my bike with me. Uh, Tri-Bike Transport at the time did not uh, send bikes to this race, and they still do not. So that is really the only option is to take your bike with you, and so get it packed, or if you have a travel case, then do it that way. Um, (laughs) I hesitate to ask because I know the answer, but any must-see attractions or must-do activities before (laughs) uh, or after the race? The the little town itself is it's just a cute little town. It's not a big place. Uh, no. Yeah, I think you could sum it up with no. Uh, we yeah. uh, both were interested in exploring a little bit, and there really wasn't a whole lot. It's uh, yeah. it's um, not much. It's, no. Yeah, there, there's, there, like you said, within walking distance, uh, there's some things worth mm-hmm. seeing, a couple of restaurants. Uh, there was a, a street market where I believe you sampled some of the uh, local culinary fare, <laughs> the six-legged My variety. Pre-race, pre-race insect meal. Yeah. Um, it, and it was safe, though. Yes, yes. It was yes, fa- yes. it was safe. It was busy. It was you know there was a lot of uh, a lot of triathletes walking around. You know you, you it had that kind of race feel to it. It felt like a race town while we were there. I mean, I have no idea what it would be like. Yeah, and that was not necessarily the vibe we had picked up beforehand because Monterey has a history of being a cartel city that had been very violent, and apparently within the last decade or so that has changed quite oh, dramatically. Gosh, yeah, it's yeah. it's been apparently much quieter. Um, 
we didn't get any sense of, of any kind of danger while we were there. And we walked everywhere. Yeah, at night. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was fine. But again, I didn't see any need to be there much before or after the race. Um, but we did get there, I want to say, on Thursday night, maybe Friday. And then we left after the race, I think on Monday, because there was a banquet on the Sunday of the race. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had to stay for that because of roll down and, of course, you to get your award. Okay, let's talk about the course. Yeah. So the swim is special. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I dare a, say the swim is unique amongst any race of Ironman or 70.3. It's, a, it's the lazy river swim. Yes, it's, it is. Uh, you can stand up in it. So, uh, okay, yeah. so let's, okay, so first of all, transition is located very close to your hotel, which is great. You set up your bike, you set up all your stuff, but then you've got to walk the two, two kilometers yeah. to get to the start of the swim. So you really have to give yourself plenty of time to do that. We did not. There is no warm-up swim, so you get there and you are off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, when we did it, it was age group waves. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's still age group waves or if it's a rolling start. I'm not sure. Uh, there's no reason for them to do anything but age group waves, given the nature of the course. So yeah. it is a, as you said, a lazy river. This is a man-made um, canal Canal in the city that is not suitable for boats. It is chlorinated water. It is, it is a very bizarre experience. Uh, <laughs> you are swimming in basically a three and a half foot, four foot pool that varies in width. And that's really the big problem. Mm. Uh, it not only does it vary in width, but it also varies in the, I would call it road furniture if it was a road, <laughs> but I guess it's pool furniture because there are fountains That's and right. other structures. You had to rope them off. Yeah, in your way along the course. Mm-hmm. The other thing that gets in your way along the course are the people who decide they want to break and will stop stand swimming up. and stand up and start to walk. <laughs> So it makes for a, an interesting swim. There wasn't much of a current, even though there is some very mild current. I didn't get much of a current assist. But your swim can be really slow if you are forced asunder by all of the furniture and people walking. Um, yeah, for, for what it was, you know, you, there's almost no sighting required because you, you literally just follow the lazy river along. And... Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't one of my faster swims, but I. I just. Yeah, I felt kind of quite sluggish in the water. Like I felt like. I don't know how to describe it. Like it just felt like a slow pool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's and exactly uh, and so and I and I and I was uh, at that point. I was forty to forty four age group, and we were the first wave to go off. Um, Lucky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I and you know I I think. Um, you know, I didn't, I really didn't have any traffic in front of me at all. So that was, so I had no excuse for the swim that I put out on the day. I just didn't feel in the mojo in that water. Okay. So you reach the end of the lazy river, which literally is where it stops Uh at the end where you (laughs) clamber up some stairs and then you go into uh, transition, which is a very large, um, uh, plaza really mm. where we were it's actually a magnificent plaza with these beautiful colonial buildings on all the sides it's very nice a lot of cobblestones which we will come back to <laughs> uh you uh get your bike and then you ride out onto uh, a highway we'd had we it had rained it, you know when it we were there yeah, yeah it had it had rained the evening before and uh so everything just had this kind of damp feel about it there was uh it, it was it felt very humid it wasn't hot but it was yeah everything just was was kind of wet and so i do remember running 
up the stairs and into T1 and just having to be very careful with my footing. So let's just talk quickly about some of the vagaries of this race. It is in Mexico and it's run by Triathlon Mexico and they definitely prioritize Mexican athletes. And I remember that at the uh, sign-in. Mexican athletes were treated very deferentially and if you weren't Mexican, you were treated very much like a second-class citizen. Um, And it had nothing to do with language. It was just they were really going out of their way to, you know, take care of the Mexican athletes, which I I don't necessarily have a huge problem with. They really want to, to, you know... You know, really make this uh, yeah, a Mexican like flavored they, race, they but, but they the were carpet, they rolled out the red carpet and they really, but it was at the expense of everybody else, which I thought was a little bit unusual. Um, and then the other thing uh, that was a little bit bizarre about this race is they made it very clear in the athlete guide that they were not going to allow disc wheels. And they did this because there's a section of the bike course that they said would be prone to very high crosswinds and they thought it would be dangerous. And then at the athlete meeting the day before the race... Hmm. Yeah, so I was upset because, uh, you know, I had read the athlete guide that had come out, you know, several days before and there was very, very, they were very explicit, no disc wheels. And I was sad because uh, I had just gotten a brand new one so I was you know keen to try it out in a race when we got there they decided that they would allow disc wheels and uh, I uh, I was really upset about it and but even despite my protest they weren't going to back down on that um, you know and and so of course if you were a local uh, you were at a big advantage because right. you were able to uh, you know have your disc wheel but you know as someone who was flying in I left it behind. Yeah, and and I should say that the athlete guide for the race this year says the same thing. It says no disc wheels, but it now says that they will make an announcement at the pre-race meeting the day before Mm. about whether or not disc wheels will be allowed. So if you are able to bring a disc wheel with you and you're going to this race, bring it Mm. because they may let you use it. And if you don't have it and you're fighting for a a top five Mm -hmm. and, you know, everybody else up there has one, you know, those seconds can matter. Minutes really can matter. And actually, as it turned out on the day, I don't recall that anyone in my age group had one. Um, but they could have. They could have. Yeah. yeah but it, it, they have. I think they have to be a little clearer. And, yeah. And and it's not, either yes or no. Yes. It can't be maybe. And then okay, at the last second, we'll let some people have them. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So then back to the bike course. The bike course is right, basically an out and back on a highway with a little brief loop that goes up and around the transition and that's where for us anyways on the day that it was raining it came to disaster for a lot of people it was scary uh i had uh we were we'd just come off we'd come off a highway or a freeway and uh you know you're in race mode you're flying along you're in aero and you're heading down a hill towards a tunnel Um, and I was wearing sunglasses cause it was glary. Um, as I'm coming into the tunnel, there were people standing just on the inside of the tunnel, screaming at us to slow down, slow down, slow down. Because what you don't see are the slick cobblestones that are, you know, pave this tunnel. Um, so they've gone from, you know, tarmac to cobblestones in the dark yeah. and they were wet. And uh, I and still we saw so many. Oh people. yeah, people were. I, yeah. I mean, it just it 
you just had to have your wits about you, really. I have no idea. I think how I it heard didn't... it more than I saw it. Oh. The number of bikes going down and yeah. people yelling out because they were it was... clearly getting injured. It was it was it was pretty ugly on that yeah. day. Now I think Very if it scary. was dry, if it was dry, it wouldn't be nearly as much of a problem. We just happened to have a, a time that it rained, yeah. but. Um, yeah. You know, other than that, the bike course itself is is very straightforward. It's not particularly challenging. It's uh, no. there's not a lot of elevation gain. It's 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 fast. Um, if you look at the athlete guide for this race, you see they spend an inordinate amount of time talking about drafting rules and uh, trying to get people to not draft. The reason they do that is because if you've ever raced in Mexico, you will know that our um, Mexican friends don't seem to pay a lot of attention to those rules. And the drafting in this race was unbelievable. I mean, it was, it was, it almost seemed like the pictures they have of like what not to do were what people took as what they should be doing. It was really, really sad. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, and, and back then, uh, with that age group, I was, you know, one of the first people out on the bike. And so on the first loop, you know, I'm, I'm out by myself and I really don't see a whole lot of what other people are doing. Um, it gets crowded, obviously, on the second loop, and you start to see big, you know, bigger sort of bunches of people going by. And it was a few years ago, and I was newer to the sport, and uh, you know, I, I just remember being a little shocked by this, thinking, "Wait, they're breaking the rules." <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And I don't know all the races I've done in Central. America, Panama, Mexico, that seems to be pretty standard, unfortunately. And uh, I mean, there are some amazing athletes down there and I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush, but uh, that does seem to be pretty standard in the culture to just draft I, I don't, like that. I don't have a good m recollection of course referees, but that doesn't mean... No, I don't remember them out I, there at uh, all. I yeah. really don't. It doesn't mean they weren't there, but I just don't. It wasn't a feature. Yeah. Mm. Uh, okay, and then uh, T2 back uh, same place as T1. So this is a, another race where it is not point to point. It is all the swim is point to point, but the uh, the bike is uh, is two loops and then back to the same transition area. And then uh, how about the run? <laughs> that we ran along the the lazy river. I felt like I was running through an amusement park and hurdling, you know, all sorts of things. So I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, <laughs> the, the thing about that. So you got to go. You had to navigate stairs. You had to navigate. So along this lazy river, there are like restaurants and, and they have patios. And so these patios have like a couple of stairs every time. And you were constantly having to hurdle these things. Yeah. And there was a, a path that went along, but the path wasn't straight. It was sort of a meandering path. So you were definitely doing a lot of weaving. And because, of course, it was wet uh, and it was slick. Yeah, I remember, I remember at one stage, uh, I guess there was a pro field and I remember as we were coming, uh, I was going out and one of the pros was coming in. I think, you know, we might have brushed hips. Um, that's how close it was. Yeah, you know, it was, yeah. There it was wasn't, narrow. It wasn't yeah. a lot of room. Yeah. Although once you get to the end of the river, then there is a section of, uh, I think it's like six or, it's got to be 8K in a park. Yeah, yeah. Where you're running in a park. It is completely flat. There is no elevation gain whatsoever to speak of on this race it's mm -hmm. in the run. It's very fast. Um it winds its way through this park, but it's very nice. Uh, I, I don't remember a lot of crowd support either on the bike or the run, except at the end. Um, and then uh, you come back along the Lazy River and then repeat the whole process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was two loops on the run too, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah no, there, I, there was one little incline towards the end on the run. It, was no, it wasn't, it, you know, 
nothing to write home about. It was probably all there was in the whole race, though. Um, aid stations, I I don't recall, but it wasn't a hot day, so... Yeah, for us it wasn't a big deal, but I do remember the aid stations were appropriate. I mean, okay. they were there, and on, I don't remember them so much on the bike because I didn't need them, but on yeah. the run they were definitely appropriately okay. spaced, right. and they were well-stocked. Um, looking back at the weather for this race, there's a big change in the last couple of years. Uh the first few years of this race, it was mid-March, and the race weather tended to be quite cool in the 60s. And then, of course, the one year we did it, it rained. But since they've moved it to May, this is a ferociously hot race. The first year it was 93. Last year it was 87. So if you're doing this race, be ready for sunshine and heat. It is going to be hot. Um, all in all, what would be your thoughts, You know, take-home sort of points for this race? Would you recommend it? Depend. Yes. Well, it's an early season race. It's fast race. Uh, it is an interesting. Like the swim course was interesting. It wasn't terrible. Um, I mean, if you're looking for a slot and you want to get it sort of over and done with early in the year, it's probably. A good one to go for, perhaps. Well, there's some phenomenal runners there. When you look at the run splits, like people are like a lot of like you know, Central American runners running like 120s on that run. So there are some really fast runners running on that course. But that being said, it is a fast course. Yeah, yeah. If you're a runner, then this is a a good place to go. It does not favor bikers because the bike course is just too easy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my my thoughts of this race is it's certainly not a destination. I know when we went, we went thinking that it might be a bit of a destination race. And in the end, uh, I would not go for the destination. It's the kind of race that I think if I had an athlete who was really scared of open water swimming, this is a great race to do. I mean, what what better introduction to a 70.3 than to do this swim? Uh, and, you know, because you get comfortable with being in close proximity of other swimmers, but at any moment, if they're losing their mind, stop, stand, stand up, up, right? <laughs> so um, it, it's really nice for that. And uh, for people who are maybe less inclined to travel, it's an easy place to travel. Right, it's easy yeah. flights and easy to get around. Everybody spoke English. It was really good that way. So, um yeah, I mean, it, it's like it's certainly not one of those races that stands head and shoulders and not something I would go back to, but definitely I can think of certain people that I think, like you said, somebody who is fast looking for a slot and then somebody who's maybe a bit of a beginner and worried about swims, this would be a great introductory race. Yeah, yeah, for a, a newbie uh, to open water swimming because it really is. Yeah, and because the rest of the course is fairly straightforward too and not that Mm -hmm. difficult. Awesome. Well, Kelly Poit is a close friend of mine, has traveled with me many times to races all around the world, and I'm always glad to have her here on the podcast. She is a... um, frequent podium finisher you can look for her anytime her age group is up uh, for awards she'll be up there at the top if she's raised that day thanks for joining me today to talk about monterey 70.3 thanks for having me Jeff. and that is it for another episode of the tri-doc podcast I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. 
If you have feedback or a question for consideration to be answered on the program, please email me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you are interested in coaching services, please visit www.tridoccoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services, as well as a means to communicate with me directly. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by The Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com where I hope that you will visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another listener question for me to answer, an interview with multiple age group world champion in ITU, 70.3 and Ironman distances, Ellen Hart, and another episode of the Triathlete Routal. Until then, train hard, train healthy.